big topics, big ideas, and practical policy solutions. This is Leaders on the Frontier with your host, David Lease. Today, our topic is about COVID-19 and what do we know now in 2023. It's been some three years. It's hard to believe that we heard about that virus called COVID-19. So there were a lot of things that were told to us back then that we actually have looked at in terms of a lot of evidence and data. So the story that we were told initially is not really the same it is today. So as Canada begins reflecting on lessons learned coming out of COVID-19, we want to get into some of those, that data, and we want to do that with the help of an extraordinary researcher, a leader, Deanna McLeod. So I want to welcome you, Deanna. Uh, she is a medical peer review publications expert. These are larger words to describe an evidence-based data analysis expert. Again, another phrase that denotes a, a scientist who's the principal, uh, principal and lead strategist at Kaleidoscope Strategies. Welcome, Deanna. Thank you, David, for having me on your show. Well, Deanna, I'm just fascinated with your background because um, you truly are a, a, a scientist that I think comes at the whole issue of understanding COVID-19 and really helping us as Canadians understand what's all happened and where we're at today. So I really do appreciate you joining us. So we've got a pretty far-reaching conversation, but I want to begin with a question. And that is, do you remember, Deanna, what, where, well, I could ask where you were when you first heard, of, heard about COVID-19, but when, what went through your mind as you started hearing more about um, what COVID-19 was about? Um, I think that, you know, as with everybody, you know, I was a little taken aback, you know, you know, could it really be that we're in the midst of a pandemic and, you know, are things as dangerous as they seem? And, and you know, the headlines were quite alarmist. Um, and uh, so, you know, a lot of it was, I'm going to, you know, I took on the position of, as an expert in this particular discipline of cancer, I'm going to trust my public health officials to be navigating the data mm -hmm. and making good decisions in the public health yes. sphere. And I think that that's what a lot of people did. They basically assumed that we had professionals in place and that they were going to make um, uh, appropriate recommendations and uh, and review the data uh, appropriately. And so, you know, with lockdowns, because we have a virtual business, um, you know, I, I have a virtual business, our whole team kind of retreated to the cottage, so to speak. And, you know, as with many people kind of started to wait it out. Um, but then whenever the lockdowns were prolonged for a good amount of time and, you know, they started this nonsense of, of masking at all times, I mean, you know, the evidence side of me started to go, oh, I haven't had a chance to review that evidence, but I highly doubt that there's sufficient evidence to support these types of Was that right? So you started, your antenna went up kind of, was it early on, mid, mid midway point, like after a year and you started wondering, well, well something's no. amiss here or what? Well, you know, in March, I mean, I'm a nerd, right? I mean, we're in evidence all the time. So the first thing I did mm -hmm. was pull the, the World Health Organization guideline on the rationalization for lockdowns and I read it. And so I was, you know, the first thing that I thought is, why, why do we have Chinese propaganda in the midst of our COVID policy? You know, this is, this is strange. This is an unusual intersection. Um, because in cancer, you know, a lot of the time, any studies that are done in China, what you do is you reproduce them in, in, you know, the Western world in order to make sure 
that what they've reported is actually accurate because you know there there is another you know there are other influences that might um, skew reporting in China versus here. Uh, they have got ideologies and political mm -hmm. views that that might mm -hmm. make their scientists want to present data in a particular way, and so you know it's just good practice to always double check and to reproduce studies on our end. Um, and that's what okay. I'm used to. So I was very surprised to be seeing that we're relying on Chinese data and Chinese scientists to guide something as extraordinary and extreme an intervention as lockdowns. Um, yeah. And generally speaking, you know, the, the, the magnitude of the intervention, so this one would be locking down the free world, uh, one would expect that that would be based on the highest levels of evidence, which would be you know, randomized controlled trials and that there was, you know, extensive uh, studying and uh, guideline preparation that had gone into this before you would go ahead and do that because it's common sense to think that there are going to be lots of repercussions to such an intervention, you know, economic, social, educational, um, and fiscal. Uh, so, you know, the I, we, I, I basically assumed and trusted that the, the specialists were doing it. But the first the first clue that I had was whenever I picked up that World Health Organization guideline that was recommending uh, lockdowns and it, and it looked like Chinese propaganda. OK, that's fascinating. So you were you were on the case uh, fairly early on, Deanna. So speaking of the case, what we'd like to do now is bring up some uh, slides and, and briefly move through them fairly quickly to just highlight some of the some of the the story that needs to be told around data and what the implication is. So can you start taking us through and it's interesting the title is the COVID-19 crisis political science 101. Why did you call it political science 101? Um because I think that that we we've arrived at a point where there's a new type of science that's at play again you know, my background is evidence-based medicine, and I was trained in that, and I've been working in that discipline for years, where, you know, studies are weighed and guideline, you know, recommendations are made. Um, and when you're making a recommendation, you you need to factor in, in the way that you phrase it, both the level of mm -hmm. evidence, so, you know, how, how sure we are that the effect that we're seeing is related to the actual intervention in question. And usually that's a large randomized controlled trial comparing um, the intervention to uh, a standard of care, right? Um, and so then you'd make that comparison. And, and if you're sure that this difference is due to the intervention, then you would say that's high levels of evidence. And then you would basically show that to a broad number of experts. Again, in my discipline, what you'd want to do is send it across multiple medical oncologists if it's chemotherapy or multiple surgeons if it's surgical intervention. And then they would all say, you know, the level agreement is above 80%. Therefore, it's a strong recommendation. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you would never proceed with anything that's extraordinary, like locking people down without that type of evidence. Uh, yeah. And you certainly wouldn't make assertions publicly like lockdown save lives if you haven't mm -hmm. measured that in a well-designed trial and shown that mortality is lower. Um, so when I'm calling it political science, what what I'm seeing here through the COVID crisis is basically science that's been manipulated to meet a certain direction or a political aim. I'm I'm calling it political because I, I can't imagine what else it is. Maybe it's financial or whatever it is. But mm -hmm. it seems as though there's entities uh, that had uh, 
a design that they wanted to see these particular things. And then what they did is they worked the science around what conclusion they actually wow. wanted to arrive that, at. That's amazing. So you're saying that in your world, as a scientist focused on healthcare, uh, helping healthcare practitioners make good decisions, you've got to be very rock solid on evidence and facts. And what you've figured out in the COVID-19 story is that something else was going on. There was a lot of manipulation of that information. So, okay, well, that's that's an amazing story. Well, let's dive in and look. let's look at the first slide then. Yeah, so the perspective that I would like to share with your audience particularly is layering in um, the marketing or the financial, the, the pharmaceutical perspective, because I don't think a lot of people really understand how that's influenced where we are. You know, I was thinking maybe I shouldn't have called it political science, but maybe I should have called it like, you know, financial sciences or, you know, something along the lines of, you know, science designed to make things seem one way that is going to profit uh, a certain group of people. You know, maybe we can save the guessing on who's profiting from this to the final slide, because I do have a slide on that. But right now what we're looking at is a figure. And this is a figure that, you know, I basically created for my company a good long while ago. Um, and it, you know, on the on the the x axis you have time, and on the y axis you have um, you know treatment uptake. So the blue line there is, you know, we can imagine that that is uptake would be equal pharmaceutical sales. So you know, as a, a drug gets adopted, so when it's in the development stage, so you've got phase one and two data, or a phase three trial. When it's in development and they're being studied, there's no sales, so there's no uptake of, of the drug. Um, however, once the phase three data is available and it's positive and it's approved by Health Canada, then what you do is you have um, uptake via academics initially. So they're the first ones to adopt. And then generally speaking, Sorry, pardon? the people in the university. Yeah, academics are like the people yeah. who are specialists. They're, do, they're doing the research. Uh, and then you okay. get community uptake would be people who you know mostly are treating patients, not necessarily have any personal research agendas. Uh, and they're they're the last to uptake. And then as the community becomes more familiar with the, you know, the intervention, then you've got uh, increased uptake over time. This is a very helpful lens uh, to kind of understand the story. Like before you sell anything, like an intervention, like mask wearing, um, vaccines, any of that, you have to seed or position the case that, well, frankly, uh, out of... You, you need to take this, you need to do this so we can, we can be okay, right? So this, mm -hmm. is, this is a very useful lens to see that. Yeah, I do. And I think that it's going to make a lot of things make sense. So what I'm going to argue is that the pre-marketing campaign was, had the goal of making people understand that COVID was deadly. So that, mm. that is the thing. So what they're doing, one of the things that you need to understand, and I'll just do a little bit of a side thing here, is that vaccines are big business. And I'm going to explain to you why vaccines are such big business. When I'm working in cancer, and this is just something that everybody understands, you know, development starts in the very late stages. So if you're, you know, uh, you know fourth line advanced cancer, you've only got a couple months to live. This is where they do a lot of um, studies exploring new treatments. Uh, you know, they don't really know very much about this new treatment, uh, but they're going to explore it there. And the people who sign on to those studies basically say, I have very little to live. I'm, you know, maybe this treatment will help me, but I'm going to be altruistic to a degree and I'm going to allow myself, you know, I'm allow that, them to experiment on me because I know that my life is short at this point. 
So generally speaking, as a study, as an agent proves to be safe and active, you move it forward very, very, very gradually until only agents that have been proven safe and effective through years mm -hmm. of testing, extensive testing, are then used on people with early stage breast cancer uh, because we don't want to worsen the outcomes. We already know that they have cancer and that that's very difficult. So we don't want to add treatment burden onto cancer burden. So, you know, you have this very systematic approach. Now, interestingly enough, your market, the amount of money that you can make is dependent on, the amount of money you can make is dependent on the market. So in advanced cancer, you have a very small market. There's only a few people who are, are you know, very close to death, whereas, you know, or late stages. Um, and then you have an earlier market, which is people who've just had surgery and they're likely gonna live 10 to 15 years. And so, um, generally speaking, drug companies want to move their product to the earliest stages possible to get the biggest market. But vaccines are completely different because vaccines, what you can do is you can start with an experimental treatment. And then basically, because you're arguing that it's going to prevent disease, you're able to give it to healthy people, which is an extraordinarily huge market. So everybody, you can argue that everybody needs to have disease prevention. And so because the market is so big, even if the cost of the agent is small, the amount of money that you make is extraordinary. Um, and the beautiful thing, wow. and I'm, gonna, I'm saying this uh, in, in a certain perspective, but the, the great thing about vaccines is that, you know, when you're dealing with treatment, you actually have to profile a patient and, and prove that the treatment works. Whereas with a vaccine, all that you have to do if you want to sell it is make somebody afraid of the worst outcomes. So wow. the goal of a vaccine campaign specifically is to portray the worst possible outcome and make people who are healthy and not necessarily at risk feel afraid of that particular outcome. When I started to look at the headlines, what I noticed was they were very alarmist, you know, such and such, you know, so-and-so dies, you know, if anybody died, <laughs> you know, all of a sudden they would, their face would be all over the headlines, right? So-and-so died from right. COVID and, uh, you know, emergencies are overflowing and then you get yeah. very sincere doctors you know coming and say yes my emergency is overflowing it, you know the the information is taken out of context you know the emergency rooms in in ontario have been um compromised for over 10 years and during seasonal flus they're always overflowing um, so what do you mean they're compromised in the sense that they're all struggling they're right? under resourced they, for years they've been struggling yeah, they've all been struggling. Yeah. So, you know, out of context, right? So you can just zoom in on that one little thing. Uh oh, mm. you know, I had a COVID case and my and my, you know, emergency room is overflowing and that's what hits the headlines. So that very selective, that very biased focused made me think that somebody was orchestrating this because we you we were only mm. ever seeing that one particular perspective. And just on that note, when we're thinking about COVID being deadly, and I, I'm a hundred percent sure that all of you can imagine the headlines that we saw. I mean, people were terrified, right? I remember the John Hopkins dashboard. I don't know if you ever saw that one, David, but you yes, know, I do. I remember yeah, that very well. I love that one because, you know, it was always the worst case scenario. It was always cumulative deaths, right? So it didn't matter if the deaths were like, you know, the very beginning of the pandemic and that the deaths had come down dramatically and we were all mm -hmm. safe looking at cumulative deaths kept that concern about COVID at its height, right? It's like this mm -hmm. many and this many, you know, what you really should be yeah. looking at is the number of events over time. And, and I should just remind people, because uh, it, it seems so long ago, but there was yep. a model done by a number of them 
Uh, I can mention them all uh, by heart, but one of them, the most famous one, I think, predicted literally hundreds of millions of people would be dying around the world. So this was definitely, um, the, the narrative was that COVID-19 is deadly, and this is going to be like the Spanish flu or SARS-2 on steroids. It's going to be a very high mortality rate and very, very infectious that's going to um, go around the entire world uh, very quickly. That was the narrative, right? Yeah. So this slide here, um, I just want to bring to your attention because um, on the left, this was a, a study that was published. And one of the things that we do the moment we start an investigation is you always look at the, the mechanism of action or the pathophysiology. How is it actually acting in the body? Um, mm. And and what is the mechanism of action so that you can you can kind of appreciate and understand, you know, who's at risk and who's not at risk. And this paper here on the left, I found this this schematic and it's particularly brilliant. Um, on the left-hand side, it talks about, you know, a young person who's contracted COVID-19 um, and their innate immune system kicks in. It's the top left-hand corner of that particular uh, figure. Their innate system kicks in and uh, it activates and it, and it, very, it very much limits the amount of a virus that can actually get into the upper airways. Uh, and that's, you know, you don't need any antibodies or anything. That's your innate immune system. You've got, you know, a strong reaction. Uh, and then if there is a virus that gets down into the, into the, the lower part of the lung, uh, you've got antibodies that identify and neutralize that virus. And, and it never actually gets into the cells, the epithelial cells, um, and it never enters into the blood. So for the most part, anybody with a robust innate immune system really was not at risk of um, any severe outcomes from COVID because the virus never got into their blood. And it's only whenever mm. it gets into their blood that you actually get things like coagulation or inflammation associated with the spike protein that's on the virus. So immediately we were like, okay, so this is going to be uh you know, something that's going to affect the elderly based on the pathophysiology. The right-hand panel shows um, how, you know, older people's innate immune system isn't so strong, so they get higher viral load. The more viral load they have, uh, the deeper the virus can go into their lungs. Okay, so so this kind of graph, and it's hard to, to totally see it there, but basically you're saying that your investigation into COVID-19 could illustrate that it was going to be okay in the, in the sense that there were particular people, namely older persons with with more um, uh, challenged health issues, were the most vulnerable. Is that it? Yeah, that well said. So, kind of bringing it down, um, every young people's innate immune system is strong enough to halt the virus in its tract, and it basically has minimal effects. Whereas okay. older people. Uh, they don't have that same innate protection. And so they're more susceptible. And so what we were going to look for then based on that was um, probably some deaths in the elderly. And that's what we're okay. showing on the, the right-hand side there. All right. So protect the, the, protect the vulnerable, namely the elderly. Don't vaccinate the kids and healthy adults. Is that it? Yeah. Or so, I mean, I think that's multifaceted, right? Because before we, <laughs> I, I probably wouldn't even recommend vaccines at any point in a pandemic. I'm really not sure what the logic is there because you've got a, mm. you know, a circulating mm -hmm. virus. And so you'd probably be driving it to mutations, which, mm -hmm. you know, some could argue actually happened. This is stunning. I, I think most Canadians would be shocked to hear this kind of perspective because it's, 
totally taking this COVID story and kind of putting it upside down. Mm -hmm. So again, when we're looking at the mechanism of action, we're thinking, okay, is it even plausible that this is going to help? So we know that it's going to cause autoimmune reactions. But the other thing that's interesting about this is that um, the the mucosal membrane, like a respiratory infection comes in through the mucosal membrane, and it's a separate system of, of immune response where it's a mucosal. It's like the mucus in your your airways traps the virus and then you've got an innate immune system and then the mediator is IgA not IgG so these vaccines are producing the wrong antibody the wrong type of antibody to be able to fight infection up here and in fact those antibodies that it's producing in your body aren't even able to get up into your respiratory system to help out so again from our perspective when we began to look at the data we basically said okay we're going to expect a lot of side effects and we're going to expect low efficacy. And so what I have here um, is our classic level of evidence, and it might be a little bit too complicated for your viewers, but if you're going to make a strong recommendation, you want to be up at the top at level one, and you want to have a randomized controlled trial that's proving that this thing works. So we looked at the randomized controlled trial for Pfizer, and we said, you know, this is the lead trial. Is it actually showing that it works? And, you know, of course, in the headlines, uh, it's like it's 90 you know, 91% effective for fighting, you know, symptomatic COVID and it's 96% effective for severe COVID. So it's not going to, you know, it's going to keep you out of the hospital. So these ideas were planted in our minds. But one of the things that they didn't actually look at, which is striking, is they didn't actually look at transmission. And so in order to be, uh, be able to justify mass vaccination, you actually have to show that it actually stops infection and you can't share it. And they never did that, David. Um, they never actually looked at transmission and it was in the actual study itself. So there was absolutely no basis at any time for a mass vaccination rollout because they couldn't prove that it stopped transmission. Wow. So there was no evidence for that. So they should not be calling it a vaccine by any normal standards because it, and they certainly couldn't justify mass vaccination. In your mind, and I know I'm, uh, we only have so much time here, but what what is your conclusion then? Like the role, the role of funding or uh, conflicts of interest here. What what does what's your conclusion here uh, ultimately, Deanna? Yeah, I think that uh, you know. Again, I was I was saying that I'm arguing that this was an, a very elaborate um, marketing campaign. It had the marks of a marketing campaign right from the beginning. Lockdowns and masking and the horrific headlines were all designed to underscore the need for the vaccine. Um, the data, the way that it was presented uh, and the way that it was marketed was more like a marketing campaign uh, where they're minimizing safety issues by manipulating the data or showing it in a certain light and maximizing benefit by showing that in a, like they, they always show the efficacy in the best possible light and the safety in the, another light. So when you see those types of things, to me, it was thinking, okay, so something's actually happening here. Um, why is our public health acting like a pharma company? Why are they... Mm doing a farm why why are they acting in the role of pharmaceuticals and so our team basically started looking at conflicts of interest so a conflict of interest is basically when um, there's another interest another party who's standing to benefit financially from a certain outcome and they have, if they have sway over the recommendations that are being made then that could actually influence how that's done. And I just want to, you know, this is an elaborate picture of what's happening, but I think that what most Canadians and even our medical institution isn't aware of that 
in the last 10 years, we've moved from being a national pharmaceutical strategy to global pharmaceutical strategy. Mm. Most of the mm. strategies are cooked up at a global level and deployed in all the different countries simultaneously. Um, and they pick, they pick their best and their the best and their brightest and they put them on the global team. And these people do that. So we follow what happens in the state CDC and the NIAID very closely. And what we probably don't realize there is that the scientists there, and for instance, there's scientists there that have the patent for the spike protein that's being used in these vaccines. Every time a vaccine is used, they benefit, they profit, they get royalties from it. Well, you know, um, so I guess as we look at this kind of information, Canadians are really confronted with um, for themselves, thinking through um, how valid this perspective is. And, and it's certainly part of the COVID-19 story. So as we look at uh, bringing this to a close, Deanna, where do you see hope and what, what kind of recommendations do you have for Canadians as they look at this and say, what, what can they do uh, as they look to action and dealing with this? Um, that's a really great question, um, David. And um, I think that we all need to become a little bit more savvy um, one of the things that I would say was true for myself is I just implicitly trusted um, my public health officials and thought that they had my best interests in mind um, when they were making their recommendations. But I think it's really important for, um, for everybody to make sure to check the facts and check the evidence and check the story to make sure that it lines up. Um, you know, from a, a leader perspective, we need to be uh, looking at these conflicts of interest and looking at the policies. And we need to hold the people who've made those changes accountable. Um, and we need to analyze to do a postmortem to figure out what influences were at play to, to shut the doors to those influences moving forward um, to make sure to bring that decision-making back down to a lower level, a decentralized level um, where people who can see and respond quickly and make interventions can and weigh the evidence uh, can can double check the people who are making the recommendations and move forward that way. Deanna McLeod, scientist and uh, leader, thank you very much for your courage and for bringing us this very fascinating overview around COVID-19. Thank you very much for all your uh, your voice on this important topic and all the very best to you. Well, thanks very much, David. Thanks for having me on. I hope this is uh, beneficial to your viewers. Thank you, Deanna. And thank you, everyone, for joining us uh, today for this uh, uh, discussion regarding this important topic. We want to uh, welcome you to get involved with Frontier, if you're not familiar with us, at our website at www.fcpp.org. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter and be sure to continue to look at this important issue, uh, particularly through the Citizens' Inquiry effort as Frontier as a partner with that effort. Thank you for watching Leaders on the Frontier. We're a nonpartisan think tank. We explore ideas, policy, and practical solutions that can make a difference in the lives of Canadians. We do not accept any government funding. We work for you. Thank you for supporting Frontier. Visit fcpp.org to give. While you're there, be sure to check out our latest articles and research. Without open discussion and debate, you're not thinking, nor are you free. Comment below. We'd love for you to join the conversation.